Welcome to the second series of Ethics for Advisors. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and Editor of Professional Planner. In this latest series, we have engaged ethics experts and practitioners to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives with a focus on how advisors and practice owners are implementing ethical practices in their businesses. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a combination of factors including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's Code of Ethics. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. We're joined today by Gordon Young, who is the Principal of Ethological Consulting in Melbourne, and Alicia Lied, Principal Advisor at Zebra Tailored Wealth based in Sydney. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Great to have you both here. Uh, I'd like to start with you, Gordon. You've come to the financial advice industry with uh, quite fresh eyes and, um, mm-hmm. you know, what's your, you've had a little bit of interaction with the advice industry now. What's your view in terms of how far along the journey the advice industry has come? Yeah, fresh eyes is the right word for it. Um, I don't have a background in finance myself, but obviously I sort of keep an eye on markets and the industry to a degree just through general interest particularly following the Royal Commission a couple of years ago, and that sort of certainly piqued our interest, as you can imagine. I've uh, been lucky enough to be involved with the FBA recently through some of the Ethics Centre work and also with yourself, Matt. And so slowly getting my head around the space. And uh, But that said, I do do a lot of work with professional associations in general, so I do have a little bit of a... Uh, threshold or a sort of a, a template for this sort of thing. It's uh, it's early days. You've just recently professionalised and that is chaotic, to say the least. It's inevitably going to be uh, quite the overturn for the industry. Huge new sort of standards have been brought in, uh, compulsory training, the whole works. This is an opportunity um, and it's a rare one. Most of the time professions are sort of refining what they already have in place, but the, pref- the profession for the financial um, sector has just started. And that's certainly chaotic, and it could easily be seen as a period of um, chaos and, you know, having to get used to enforced rules and so forth. And it could definitely be seen as a bad process, but it can also be seen, and I would strongly encourage it to be seen as an opportunity to really take hold of the future of the industry. This is about the rawest opportunity you're ever going to get to um, decide what the industry can and should look like and exert some control over it. Yeah, great. And looking forward to digging in uh, a little bit further into the work you're doing with the association and and and, um, and broadly in the profession. Um, Alicia, um, great to have you on board. Now, tell me a little bit about your business, your practice and um, your interaction with ethics and, and the code. Um, yeah, so my business is Zebra Tailored Wealth. Uh, so we only started about two years ago. Prior to that, I was um, I had about 16 years with a bank. Uh, so we're fairly new, which has actually worked really well. We started mid 2019. So, um, you know, as well as starting the business, I thought, oh yeah, let's just get ahead of all this education stuff. So by the end of 2019, I'd kind of 
done the ethics, done the FPA exam and done all the education requirements and stuff like that. So, so to me, that's a bit of a thing of the past, which is great. Um, and yeah, I, I guess because we've come into it pretty fresh and haven't had grandfather commissions or, uh, kind of any of those issues from the past, it's been fairly clean slate for us, which I think has been helpful. I know standard seven, for example, is causing a lot of contention with receiving benefits from third parties rather than directly from clients. Mm. And, you know, for us, we've never taken any of these payments. So it's, it's just not an issue. It hasn't been a complexity for us, but I can see why a business that's been around for 20 years and built all sorts of networks and agreements and things like that, I can see why it's a really complicated issue for some practices. Yeah. You know, what are some of your aspects of the code you think maybe um, trickier or or can be a bit sticky in your practical experience? Um, I, I think I think standard six is probably one of the stickiest. Yeah. Um, uh, I just think there's, and we're possibly going to talk about some of these things, but um, I just think there could be a lot of potential future issues and it's very, very open to interpretation. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because... I don't think there's many advisors out there that that aren't curious. I think that probably to come into the profession, our job is to be curious. Yeah. Um, but you know, how curious and and how do you how do you know how far that curiosity needs to go and what what you might have missed um, and how far into the future does that go? Talking about these broad effects, so that's a really sticky one. Mm. Um, I love standard 12. I like the whole holding, holding each other accountable. And, um, I actually feel like, I feel like the financial planning community has really bonded together over the past couple of years. I don't know if that's because of Mm. SEER or, you know, the results of the pressure maybe and the changes, but, um, I feel like it's been a great thing for advisors. I'm, I've certainly got a ridiculous amount of fabulous contacts now across all licensees and, just the advice community in general, and it's pretty great what everyone's trying to. Yeah, so because quite often, you know, in in the press and and elsewhere, you know, there is a lot of negative tension around some of these changes, and you know, it's nice to hear. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think a lot of the banding together. I don't know if I'm allowed to give a plug or not, but a lot of the banding together has probably come from X Y Advisor. Yeah. Okay. Um, who and who are trying to. Um, what is it? Positive evolution of advice. Yeah. Kind yeah. of what they're working on. And, um, you know, they've brought a lot of us together and just a ridiculous amount of sharing, just, you know, no, uh, no reason for any of us to share other than just for it to be the betterment of, of planning as a whole. And it's working really well, I think. Yeah, great. What, what does that tell you, Gordon, about that uh, professional evolution? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, it's, it's compelling and it sounds about right. It's like inevitably in this sort of space, you're going to have a wide variety of reactions to something like this, right? You're going to have uh, people that would quite like it to go back to the way it was. Yeah. You're going to have people that take it in the, take the bit in their teeth and run with it, right? And it is natural, I think, to see leaders emerge in this space. And uh, yeah, we've seen a couple of examples right there. And this is really, it's, it's exactly what you'd expect in a space like this. And, and like I said earlier on, it is chaotic time. And so it's a question really becomes, 
who's going to get control of the narrative here? Who's going to um, have control over what the culture becomes within the industry? Mm. And that's really relevant to the sort of standards we were talking about too. Like the first year code in particular, um, if, if I'm not getting too far ahead of myself here, Matt, but like as a code, uh, it's a good code, but these codes are always limited. If all that was needed for an industry to pile itself to a really high ethical standard was code, then we wouldn't have 99% of the problems we have, right? The problem is, is that these codes, by their very nature, we call them deontology, the ethics space, a set of rules, right? Do this, don't do that. Good, bad. Uh, they can be more or less comprehensive, and, you know, this one is pretty good as those codes go, but they've inherently got a weakness. It's unavoidable that this approach to ethics has a weakness. It's the nature of the beast. Set of rules is inherently going to be simplistic. And therefore, you have to rely on things like values for a strategic perspective, but also for culture and professional judgment to determine what it looks like in practice on the detailed granular level. And that really is what we're talking about here because this is this is the game right now for the profession, is what is going to become the norm for the profession, what is going to be the done thing in this space. So... Hopefully, it'll look like those sort of leaders that uh, Alyssa was uh, mentioning earlier on. So embracing that, taking it uh, in stride and trying to make the best of it and turn it into something to be uh, very, very proud of. Well, okay. Well, let's go there then. Um, you know, what in the code do you think works and what doesn't work? I actually quite like it all round. Um, like I was saying, yeah, <laughs> similar to Alicia, the uh, standard 12, so individually and in cooperation with peers, you must uphold and promote the ethical standards of the profession and hold each other accountable for the protection of the public interest. This is perfectly emblematic of the entire code in a way, right, in that it's on paper, it looks great. It looks really, really good. But I'm sure if we put a little bit of brain power to it, we can think about a seven different ways to break that particular code. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and But that's not a failure of the code. Inevitably, this is going to be the case. I mean, over and over again, you go into a corporate client or government client for that matter, and you talk to the staff on the bottom, well, you talk to the leaders first and foremost, and they'll say things like, I know we've got an accountability framework in place. We've got our corporate values, banners all over the office. You know, we're accountable. We have a high degree of integrity, yada, yada, yada. You talk to the people on the front line of the of the work down in the coalface, they don't believe in that. They don't think it adds any weight whatsoever mm. because who enforces the code? Yeah. The people they want to report against. It's an interesting narrative that came up in the first series. I mean, one of the things the government did was to make the code um, a binding, you know, in a, le- in a legal sense. It's on, on the one hand, it's the law, but on the other hand, it's, a, it's an overarching guiding principle. Well, what are the challenges with what are the challenges with having a code that is both binding and a principle? Mm. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, how much different is it from law at that point? Mm. And, uh, yeah, well, do you want to conflate ethics with law? Because after the time, the law forms the minimum standards of behaviour. We don't have laws that tell people how they should conduct themselves in every facet of their life. We have them as a minimum standard to maintain professionalism or good conduct inside society. Ethics, generally speaking, is about that next step up. It's about what we should do in a given situation. When you start to mess those two things together, things they get a little bit ugly. So, I mean, I like the code. Don't, please don't get the uh, the idea that I don't have uh, respect for it, but it really will come down to who is enforcing Standard 12, for example, and whether or not uh, they interpret it in the same way that we're interpreting it. Yeah. I'm going to come back 
to you because I want to bring Alicia in, but um, I'm going to come back to you and ask you a little bit about that voice and leadership. And I know, um, you know, we've got the FPA and other associations, but kind of how that might, in your view, um, you know, evolve, you know, as, as, as we go along. But yeah, Alicia, some of the things that are in the code, are they things that you, you know, naturally do as a, you know, as an individual um, who, you know, I presume looks after their be- client's best interests or do you need to be told um, in order how to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I think a lot of them are common sense. Like uh, if I'm looking at integrity and um, conflict, n- not so hard, best interests, free prior and informed consent, like I think that's all um, very obvious normal ones that we should all be complying with anyway. So I don't think there's really any any issues there. And then I think the latter ones kind of um, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 um, are not particularly tricky either about competence and knowledge and cooperating and all that kind of stuff. So the three big ones for me are 5, 6 and 7. Yeah, it's, but it's funny you skipped over three, right? I mean... That seems to be an area that the industry, there's still quite a lot of ownership, um, you know, particularly in our licensing rate or the advice industry's licensing regime. Are, you know, are you able to operate without conflict? Yeah, I feel like I am. Um, I, I I do understand there's, there's definitely always going to be issues with um, vertical integration and, you know, m- my licensee is our advice group. And then they're owned by IWF now, who owns quite a few different licensees. Um, so I think I think there are a lot of issues that they are going to have to stay ahead of and make sure that they are on top of. Um, I feel like at the ground level, where I'm meeting clients, uh, understanding their needs, mm. giving them options and answers, brainstorming every individual. Um, client and and we're very tailored. We 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 go into far too much detail with every client and and all the work that we do for them. There's no kind of cookie cutter stuff there. So I feel like we've got a ridiculously broad range to choose from. Mm. We we can go to our research team and um and we often do where we if we want to request something a bit different or um and that's that's generally gen, generally approved. Assuming we've got good um, method. Mm. And and kind of we give them all the background information and why we suggested that. So I, I don't feel confl- conflicted at my level, but I do understand that there are definitely issues that are going to have to be contended with, and yeah. and then it's going to change over time. It's going to be different every year. Yeah, and looking forward to in the scenarios, um, really putting some of these um, rules or, or guidance to the test. Um, but yeah, before we do, Gordon, uh, yeah, just wanted to get your view on that the voice and that leadership question you know is it necessary for the profession to progress for there to be a natural leadership to to lead the way what's it going to look like in in five years time as as the journey matures and evolves Mm, look it's got to be a combination of factors would be my suggestion yeah centralized leadership is obviously valuable and that's where the uh, fba holds a really strong um, sort of role mm-hmm. in that. We've got to promote it but also enforce that code, make sure it doesn't just become window dressing. Uh, but there's also a role for every individual professional, right? Like this is ultimately going to be an individualistic. It's 
about uh, driving the sort of step you want to see in the profession, right? Like this is going to happen on an individual level 90% of the time. Like, it, yes, Standard 12 is in there encouraging us to keep each other accountable and that's excellent and that should be in there. But most of the time ethical decisions happen, <laughs> most of the time they don't even happen consciously. Most of the time it's a subconscious process. A lot of the work we do through the Ethics Centre is about bringing that to the fore, forefront of our thinking so that we can determine whether it's a good approach or not. But, yeah, so individuals have a strong role to play here and then also individuals collectively, right? What do the members want the industry to look like? All too often we've seen uh, top-down approaches. While they do have their place and they aren't necessary, leadership is necessary, if you take a purely top-down approach, there'll be no buy-in by the people that uh, the members of the institution that would just be something they comply with, right? This is the opportunity I was talking about earlier. This is the opportunity for individuals within the profession to have input. What do we want the future of the profession to look like? What should be normal in this profession? What should be rewarded for that matter as well? I mean, that's the really nasty reality of ethics, unfortunately, is that if you have uh, unethical behaviours rewarded in a given environment, then being ethical actually becomes a competitive disadvantage because people will just happily do or go about their business unhindered by doing their due diligence and proper responsibilities. It undermines the entire legitimacy of the profession in the long term, but in the short term, it sure does make you some money. Yeah. You're, I see you smiling there, Alicia. Any, any further comment on that from a practitioner's level? No, just very interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> that was all right. Mm, well, yeah, no, look, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, we haven't really seen the code of ethics enforced, um, to be mm. to be to be fair. And uh, you know, carriage of that was with with ASIC, and I think uh, is now in in the hands of uh, Treasury, and will um, you know will. Um, you know, we'll see what happens um, under the the single disciplinary body. So I think how the code is enforced is, uh, you know, still still out there. But maybe mm-hmm. if we're all individually accountable, there's no need for for enforcement. Um, uh, it seems like a bit of a nirvana scenario. Yeah, you say that, but there are examples out there. I mean, you don't walk into a hospital and risk feel like that you're risking your safety. You know what I mean? Like, you don't feel like a doctor's going to do the do something dodgy and harvest an organ while they're about things, you know? Like, it, you trust the profession, and the reason you trust the profession isn't because, you know, it's there aren't pe- bad people inside of it or because that you've read their code of ethics and it's a really good code of ethics. It's because it's been internalised. And in fairness, the medical professions had, well, several hundred years to iron that one out, and God knows they had a few humps along the way and still do have the occasional failure. But at the same time, the community trust is off the charts because it's it's a lived it's a lived experience for them. It's not uh, something they've written on the wall and just sort of pay lip service to. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenarios to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions relevant to the episode. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs.
So the first scenario is entitled Tricky Conversation with Clients. Um, I'm sure they're all tricky, but um, this one probably mm-hmm. is as as tricky as, uh, as they come. A 60-year-old was introduced to us by her accountant to get advice for her elderly mother. Her mum was 89 years old. The advice was fine, but when it came to the mother's estate planning wishes, things got a little bit prickly. The mother wanted to leave her estate, including super, one third each to each child, providing the child was alive at the time of death. Um, If the child predeceased her, she did not want to let the estate cascade to any of the grandchildren. She insisted she wanted it to be split 50-50 between her two surviving children. The 60-year-old disagreed with this approach and felt the assets should be passed on to the descendants, i.e. the grandchildren, if a child was not alive. I was asked by both parties what is the right thing to do and what do other people do. It was tricky. It was a tricky situation as the daughter had a POA um, for her mother and introduced her to our business um, and represented the future of a commercial relationship, which is um, obviously quite an interesting point. Yet ultimately the elderly mother was our client and it was her wishes that needed to be followed. It wasn't really practical to meet with the mother alone without the daughter due to transportation. I did not have any contact with the other children. What started out as a straightforward investment and super advice turned out to be a precarious situation. Really interested in how our experts and our advisor weighs into this one. Can I start, please, with you, Gordon? Yeah, this is um, certainly in that sort of realm. Uh, The thing is, is you've got a lot of uh, family drama entering into the space, right? You have two fundamental approaches to the situation which are going to end up in completely different results, but you can see why both parties would think this is fair, yeah? Like, as in, this is the agreement we had originally. I mean, God forbid anyone's children pass away prior to a grandparent, but if it does, what are we going to do? It's sort of a fringe case in many regards because hopefully it won't occur, but if it does occur, you're going to have some serious problems on your hands. So in many ways, I would actually consider the fact that this is being considered proactively a bit of a success because you can imagine how much worse this would be if the situation did come into effect, like one of the grandchildren did pass and then you've got to sort this out. Excellent planning really in advance. So in some ways, this is a victory in itself. Really, the thing here is that you can't be playing counsellor. You're not equipped for it, right? If you go into this to try and it's a very serious professional qualification and I strain into it from time to time and immediately have to refer the mum to something else, you're not going to be able to resolve this family conflict. It's not on an emotional level. It's a completely different set of skills. So in some ways, you can see a couple of approaches being taken here already. You've got to be clear on what your responsibilities are and your duties are, particularly your legal responsibilities, since those are the ones that will absolutely be enforced. But then just clarifying the issue down, really. If you can get an agreement or an understanding between the parties, fantastic. But in this situation, if that's not possible, you can sort of see the line of reasoning here in that we have a tricky situation because the daughter had a POA from mother, introduced it to the business, represented a future of commercial relationship, yet ultimately the elderly mother was the client. Well, there's your answer. Your elderly mother is the client. You have a fine, you have a legal duty to her apart from anything else. But while it might seem like there's a lot more to add to this situation, and there is, falling back on the specific duties you have in this situation, which is where the code can be very useful, but also uh, having nice clear policy on something like this as well is very useful within a company. It simplifies the question down from a horrible mess of personal feelings into a straightforward set of processes. 
Great, Gordon. Thanks for that. And Alicia, what are your thoughts on the topic? Um, I feel like the reality here is that if I'm thinking about practical options, because I'm sitting there with the client or with the mum and the daughter in the room, um, uh, you know, open and honest communication with all parties is all I can, you know, I just don't see any way forward other than that. Um, I don't think it's particularly tricky that the daughter introduced her and is younger and therefore like, I just I don't even think that should come into play for an advisor to possibly think that they would make a different decision based on that. Like as Gordon said, the mum is the client. If she still has capacity right now, she's the one with the opinions and it's her life and it's her money. Um, I would avoid specifically trying to answer the questions about what do other people do or what is the right thing to do because there is no right thing other than probably what the mum wants. I, I think for me it's it's probably more about the why. Why does she want that? And is there a way of her communicating that in the room with the daughter to get to the point where everybody's comfortable with her decision? I feel like ultimately it's her decision it's her money. She's If she's got capacity, she can pretty much do whatever she wants, but um, she also needs to be aware that she won't be around anymore. And if um, I'm sure the, the last thing she wants is for her family to fall apart and for people to contest the will and all that kind of stuff. So if she's got firm opinions, we need to know why. And it probably needs to, be, I'm not a solicitor, I don't give legal advice, but it probably needs to be written in the will. Because it's it, it's probably not the usual, is it really? But it's her wishes. Yeah, so. and it's I'm interested in you seem to be going up to and then, you know, existing on that edge of what Gordon was describing as this almost, um, you know, uh, psychological um, companion for the client in a way because you do want from what I'm hearing, Alicia, and, you know, correct me please, but uh, you, you do want there to be some satisfaction with with the client and, and the parties to, you know, in in the during this process? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like it has to be resolved somehow mm. uh, and and I, I think the answer to that can't be like head in the sand, avoid or... Uh, ignore or do something without the other party's knowledge because just causing them long-term pain in that case. But is opening that conversation a bit of a can of worms though? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. <laughs> it definitely is, um, at least if you don't mind me jumping in. Um, but, yeah, I think that's actually a really good insight, actually, because I think that reveals a, a different approach we could take here rather than a hard-line approach or a um, getting involved in family drama. But rather looking at it as, like, levels of engagement, you know, like ideal outcome here absolutely is that you explain the situation, you hear both sides of the story, they come to agreement and the entire situation is resolved, right? That would be great. But it might not be possible. Yeah, and it might be beyond your capacity, at which point second option, like levels of redundancy, you know what I mean? Like the first option didn't work, what are we going to do next? Then next, and then finally. And the final level of engagement is sort of what I was describing, saying this is not my business, here is our policy line, this is what we will be doing. 
in a situation like this, which again is where the code is useful and internal policy is good. But there are middle grounds, one of which might be referral to a counsellor or family counsellor. You can let them actually have a go with a proper professional who can resolve this or does have the skill set. Yeah, great. Look, uh, that's that's excellent and um, thanks very much for the insights there. Let's go on to scenario two. If an advisor were to provide specific estate planning advice such as review the current will for a blended family, at what point could FASIA's standard six be invoked um, by an aggrieved beneficiary of that estate as you, as the advisor recommending uh, recommended addressing? Um, could it be argued that and, and proved that into the future that you as the advisor were the kernel of an idea that sparked a potential unequal proportion of an estate being bequeathed out of no fault of your own other than to highlight best practice in estate planning. Arguably, standard six is the most controversial of all the standards um, mm. where you are liable for a causality effect on which you believed to be appropriate advice at the time forever Great bit of commentary here by our writer here that standard six is the most controversial of all. So calling it out there, uh, do you agree, Gordon? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Standard six, for those who aren't familiar, uh, you must take into account the broad effects arising from your client acting on the advice and actively considering the client's broader long-term interests and likely circumstances. Look, I can understand why someone would read that in panic. Because that sort of looks like you're taking responsibility for everything that happens to that client forevermore, <laughs> uh, potentially multiple generations down the line. Again, this is where that sort of um, clarity around the code and what it actually looks like in practice as opposed to on paper can be useful. Because you're right, the, the person that wrote this in is right. If you took that as a purely that is the rule, no room for interpretation otherwise, then that is a potential interpretation of that. That, uh, that could be quite terrifying. Look, there's two responses to this. First and foremost, a code like this is never going to operate like that because it would bring the entire profession to a screaming halt. It's simply not practical, right? And therefore, what are we going to do instead? Second option here, second point that needs to be made is that this is a pretty standard scenario you find in ethics, and it's a very simple question. What do I do if I don't know what the consequences will be? And it's a pretty common question because that is unfortunately literally every direction you're ever going to have. Uh, the future is unknowable, at least by our current abilities, and uh, therefore the consequences of any action could be completely unforeseen or completely ridiculous. I'm saying this in the context of uh, looking at another Melbourne lockdown. <laughs> uh, that's the way things go. But what do you do in a situation where you're not sure what the results of your actions will be? Well, there's a few things. We risk plan. That's what risk planning is for. We operate on the best available information at the time, and that means getting some good clarity on that. If you're not sure, verify. Get the best available information at the time. Get second opinions if you're worried about that as well. Personal biases are unavoidable, but they can be managed by getting different perspectives on the issue. And finally, a good paper trail. Make sure it's extremely clear why you did what you did in the circumstances and what precautions were taken to make sure that you tried to do the best you could. At the end of the day, ethics is largely about exactly this, making sure that your decisions in the time and space you were in are as defensible as they could be. Yeah, great. Great insight there. Alicia, your thoughts? Um, I feel like this is uh, fairly straightforward. Yeah, ridiculously scary, yeah, like, if, as you, as you say, it would bring the profession to a halt if we were going to go down paths like this. But 
I feel like it is our duty to spark the thinking of of our clients for, for a lot of issues, and that includes all the estate planning issues. Um, you know, it kind of comes back to the curiosity and how curious are we meant to be, but we're definitely meant to be that curious. Um, and so obviously we're not solicitors, so we, we can't provide the legal advice. Um, but, yeah, I imagine we are very often the kernel of, of the idea that changes lives. Mm. Um, you know, how you, uh, how you deal with that long term and, and how this standard six affects us long term is going to be very, very interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an example of, I mean, so much you know, in terms of guidance is put through um, the compliance machine of licensees um, when, every, when every, every single thing that's put through a compliance lens obviously is taken to the nth degree of, of um, dissected and, and, and detail. So um, some of the principles-based discussions that we're having seem to be at odds with that in a way. So mm. there's... Doesn't surprise me that some advisors are a bit um, find it very very challenging to to figure out how they're supposed to act in some of these situations when they're you know faced with with proposi- propositions such as standard six. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, look, and again, I know I'm being a dead horse here, but um, this is exactly what I'm talking about again when I, I talk about. This is an opportunity to shape the profession. You've really got two responses to a situation like this. The code has been introduced. It's not going away. Mm. What you can choose to do at this point is just roll with it and just accept it and just hope that it doesn't go get start to become interpreted or that the culture doesn't turn in such a way that you end up with either a ridiculously prescriptive code or a complete lack of context, at which point it just becomes something that's on the wall. Or you can engage with it as a profession, and that's really what I would encourage you want to do. You want to make sure that this thing is useful to you, not just an inconvenience and certainly not an irrelevance. You want to make sure that it's um, a sword and shield for the profession. You know what I mean? Encouraging good practice. Yeah, great. Okay, well, look, we're on to the last scenario. So this one's got a little bit, a few uh, different um, twists and turns in it. Um, So um, here we go. A client now living in Indonesia um, but with an Australian superannuation asset asks for $50,000 withdrawal via an email to pay a debt. How do you satisfy yourself that the request is genuine and act accordingly? On the same day, the paperwork is returned via an email from off, uh, overseas. The client's son contacts you from the airport in Jakarta to tell you his father is dying in hospital. The next day later the son calls you again from Indonesia to tell you that his father has died and that the father had a local wife that was unknown to the family or you. The wife still wants the money to be transferred, but the son, who is the executor of the father's estate, doesn't want the money to be transferred to Indonesia. How do you act? Um, You can pick off any bit you kind of want there. I mean, there's a few little twists and turns in that ones and, uh, as I was reading this, uh, thinking to myself, well, life is messy, so why don't we just um, have a messy scenario and see what the experts say? So, Gordon, over to you. Yeah, this one's ugly, hey. There's uh, about three different issues all compounded into the mix. 
So the first one, um, the how do you determine whether the request is genuine and act accordingly is actually something I'm going to have to refer to you, Alicia, if you're okay with it, because that sounds like more of a procedural thing. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, I, I look at that first line and I think, okay, well, to speak about the second and the third paragraph, the assumption probably needs to be that this initial request wasn't fraudulent or anything like that. And so from a practical point of view, yeah, if we get an email from somebody saying, oh, by the way, I need $50,000, we, of course, can't just act on that, uh, thankfully. So uh, we need to get in touch with the client, um, you know, based on the contact details that we have and make sure that we satisfy ourselves that it is actually the client who is wanting that request and that they have capacity and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I agree that that first part's kind of fairly practical and um, probably to answer the rest of the question, we need to believe it's not fraudulent. Sure. And, yeah, we'd be checking to make sure that it actually was the client requesting this. Okay, redemption. good assumptions there. Now on to the next part, Gordon. Yeah, the rest of it, though, is where things get fun, isn't it? Because there's a lot happening here because I... Yeah, thank you, Alicia. Yeah, it sounds absolutely perfect. But the complication is that the client has passed away in the middle of the process. <laughs> so that's fun. Now, I have to be honest, I don't know what, especially since we're crossing international boundaries here, so we've got two legal frameworks to play with. But then again, that's probably the answer to the question, isn't it? I'd be talking to a lawyer. <laughs> I'd be talking to several lawyers, in fact including one in Indonesia or at least someone specialising in Indonesia or to figure out how that works. What, what, can but, we, uh, what can we pick off here that's kind of in the in the more ethical realm? Yeah, the ethical realm is like you've got questions of trust, you've got questions of priority and you've got questions of fairness here. Like if you bring it down to its essentials, what you've got here is two parties competing over the trust or competing over the money. Now, you can easily sympathise with either side of this or one side alone or both sides simultaneously. You can easily imagine the uh, Indonesian, the wife in Indonesia could very badly need that money um, and could, especially being a developing country, depending on the circumstances and if there's debts or whatever, then that could be quite a serious situation. Similarly, you can easily sympathise with the, uh, the son in the situation who, well, I'd, it, there's possibilities of fraud, there's possibilities of uncertainty. We've we got no idea here. God knows that maybe they're even estranged from each other, right? I'm going to give a similar answer to that particular gnarly problem as I did with the previous one, which is that this isn't your job, <laughs> right? You're not a family counsellor and you're not equipped for it. I mean, if you happen to have a second qualification in family counselling, then go for it. But at the same time, this is potentially very ugly. If you can get them to communicate and come to an agreement, fantastic, right? Problem resolved. But again, it's unlikely in this situation. You need to be very, very clear on what your duties are. And this, provided we've consulted a lawyer and we've gotten clarification on what the legal process is, then, uh, yeah, the, the question here, I'd be following their advice on who receives or which uh, process here has priority and then following that accordingly. Um, ideally, again, yeah, you might want to refer them to counselling in some regard or maybe you want to negotiate or arbitrate a settlement. I mean, if there is an urgency for the Indonesian's uh, wife's situation, then maybe that does need some attention. But again, at the end of the day, you're a financial planner. You're a financial advisor. You're not a family counsellor. Hmm. Alicia? Mm. Yeah, so, uh, so the last line there says, how do you act? So uh, 
I think it's, it would be awfully tricky in reality. Um, in a way, I would hope, so you've received the paperwork, so you've had the client speaking to you, you knew what he wanted, you've received the paperwork. In a way, life would be really nice and neat if you had sent that paperwork off to Australian Super because then, to be honest, you know, I feel like you've done what the client asked you while, to do while he was alive and then really it's a matter of do you, you know, do you have to put a hold or a cease on that transfer and, mm. um, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I think the reality is that you, you have acted as your client asked you to act while he was alive. If you've already processed it, my thoughts are that you continue to let that process um of course there's a lot more issues than that and what if you haven't sent the paperwork off and then you find out that the client has passed does that mean that all of a sudden the executor is the person that that should be directing you at that point and not your your client from the one day prior mm-hmm. um you know i'm gonna to have to agree with gordon here that i mean i would there is no way i would take any action without getting legal advice. Um, so I guess that means my action would be no action. And again, then we're back to, okay, well, if you'd already sent the paperwork off, great. You, it's not in your, it, it's not your job to cease that when you haven't had that request from your client who asked you to do it. If you haven't sent it off, gosh, I don't know. What you <laughs> well, great. Look, I really <laughs> hope that helps the, um, author of that scenario and um, <laughs> if that person is listening. Um, look, it's been a really fascinating conversation and, um, you know, really grateful for your time, Gordon and Alicia. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.